Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 19th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Let's start out by taking a look at the weather. For today, snow likely, windy, with a northwesterly wind at 20 to 30 miles per hour plus, high 32, low 23. Tomorrow, cloudy, with a northwesterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, the high of 27, and a low of 17. Saturday, cloudy with a southwesterly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour. The high will be 28 and the low 19. Then, on Sunday, cloudy with a westerly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour with a high of 30 and a low of 20. Today's top weather story is from meteorologist Joe Winter, and it says, We are winding down January, and in just over a week, February is upon us. There are good indications that some colder weather will be moving in, allowing us to have a drier atmosphere and a clearer sky. This is good news if you want to look beyond the weather. The morning hours are a great target to pick for the late part of the month. And that's today's top weather story from meteorologist Joe Winters. Let's go to the front page of the Gazette for today. And there's a story written by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette. Prince on rifle match accused killer. Dateline Cedar Rapids. Two palm prints matching Alexander Jackson, who's accused of fatally shooting his parents and sister in 2021 in northeast Cedar Rapids, were found on the 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle that police say is the murder weapon. A former Cedar Rapids police crime scene investigator, Brandon Bosenberg, who was with the department at the time of the murders on June 15, 2021, testified Wednesday during the triple murder trial that the rifle's case was found under Alexander Jackson's bed. There were also numerous other guns found in the house, under the bed, and on top of storage areas in the master bedroom, and in a safe in the basement. But Bosenberg said the weapon used to kill 61-year-old Jan Jackson, his wife, 68-year-old Melissa, and their daughter, 19-year-old Sabrina, was the 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. All of the shell casings and live rounds investigators recovered in the house were 22 caliber ammunition. The 22-year-old Jackson is charged with three counts of first-degree murder. The prosecution will continue its case Thursday and will play a video of the police interview with Jackson. The trial may wrap up early next week. Bosenberg said he placed the latent prints that matched Jackson's palm prints on the gun to determine how someone was holding the rifle. He demonstrated in court how the rifle would have been held with the muzzle pointing down to the floor or to the person's feet. Bosenberg said fingerprints are delicate and can be easily smudged or smeared, but these prints were good quality and showed correlated ridge areas to Jackson's prints. If there was a struggle over the gun, as Jackson said he struggled with an unknown intruder he blamed for the murders, the prints would have been smeared or smudged, according to testimony from Bosenberg. Jackson was shot in the foot, his lawyer has said, but police think Jackson shot himself in trying to cover up his crime. First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Monica Slaughter asked Bosenberg if a circular pattern around Jackson's foot injury could be the barrel of the rifle. Bosenberg told jurors it appears to be. 
Bosenberg testified Wednesday, as did other police officers in previous testimony, that there were no signs of an intruder or a forced entry into the house. The basement door, where Jackson said the intruder escaped, wasn't damaged by anyone kicking it in or prying it open. No latch was broken or the framing damaged. Surveillance camera videos from the neighborhood also didn't show anyone coming or going from the Jackson house during those early hours when Jackson called 911. Bosenberg said there was no sign of a struggle in the house. The furniture appeared to be in normal positions. For example, Slaughter asked, if there were any pieces of a puzzle found on a coffee table in the basement area near where Father Jan Jackson's body was found, Bosenberg said no pieces were found on the floor. The puzzle was still on the table. Bosenberg also testified that the rifle is unusual in that it didn't have to be cocked before shooting a bullet. The magazine holds 11 rounds, but it would have been reloaded more than once based on the number of gun injuries to Jan, Melissa, and Sabrina. Bosenberg said he had to go online to learn how to load the rifle. In showing it to the jury, he explained how it ejected bullets from the bottom, while most weapons eject bullets to the right side or the top. Tyler Johnson, who is Jackson's lawyer, grilled Bosenberg about one palm print taken from the gun that wasn't identified in a fingerprint database. Bosenberg said it wasn't good enough in quality to find a match. Johnson suggested that print may have led to the intruder. Bosenberg also identified photos of bloodstains and spent shell casings in the areas where the three family members were found. There was a photo of bloodstains in the hallway near Jan Jackson's body. Bosenberg said the bloody footprints are Alexander Jackson's and they go both directions in the hall. There are no bloody footprints upstairs where his mother was found or in the basement leading to Sabrina's room. One photo showed spent shell casings behind the sofa near Jan Jackson's body. In the master bedroom, a photo showed Melissa, the mother, on the floor beside the bed. There were spent shell casings near the doorway and a cell phone on the floor. Bosenberg said there were bullet holes in the bed pillows and headboard that would have come from the direction of the doorway. In Sabrina's basement bedroom, which was next to Alexander's, she was found in bed, Bosenberg said. Investigators initially found one shell casing and thought she had a gunshot to her left eye, but after her body was moved, they found another spent casing from a wound to her left torso. Her cell phone was found in her bed. Also on the front page is a story written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette, UI plans to close health care access gap. Dateline, Iowa City. By 2025, University of Iowa Healthcare expects to have a new primary care location up and running in southeast Iowa City, addressing what's called a health care access gap in that part of town. Citing an analysis of local health care needs, UIHC officials said Wednesday that Southeast Iowa City has the fewest primary care options in the community despite being the most densely populated. According to the news release promising forthcoming details on the projects, which will add to UIHC's growing list of health care facilities under construction, many residents must travel outside of their immediate community to access care. In November, the university issued a request for qualifications from 
prospective developers interested in designing and building a new primary care medical office building in Iowa City. That initial request didn't specify a location or part of town and suggested UIHC might consider other scenarios to new construction, such as a repurposed existing facility, if a compelling business case can be structured. It also noted the developer selection would involve two phases, including a short list of finalists asked to submit detailed proposals. Wednesday's news release said, The university has begun the request for proposal, the RFP process, to identify the developer and exact location to establish a new facility in southeast Iowa City. In a statement, Iowa City Mayor Bruce Teague praised the university's planned addition. Teague said, In order to build strong neighborhoods and a healthy community, we need to make sure everyone has access to high-quality health care. We are pleased the University of Iowa shares this commitment to increase health care access. By placing primary care services in this currently underserved neighborhood, we can have a positive impact on the health of our community for years to come. UIHC recently has laid out more than a billion dollars in new construction projects underway or upcoming, including a 525.6 million dollar hospital in North Liberty, a 95 million dollar vertical expansion of its existing inpatient tower, a 24.6 million dollar renovation of its emergency room, and an 8 million dollar conversion of its south wing into inpatient rooms. Through at least 2029, UIHC expects to spend more than $620.9 million building a new inpatient tower on the main campus, a cost that doesn't include expenses this year or in fiscal 2029. UIHC officials have cited crammed corridors, patient rooms, operating suites, and waiting spaces in espousing the need for more facilities and construction on its main campus and across the community and region. Spokeswoman Laura Shoemaker on Wednesday said UIHC was at 93% capacity, with 805 patients filling most of its 866 beds. As of about 1 p.m. Wednesday, Schumacher said it had logged 4,334 outpatient visits, numbers that can fluctuate dramatically on any given day. In the 2021 budget year, UIHC reported more than 32,000 inpatient admissions, nearly 50,000 emergency room visits, more than 35,600 major surgeries, 169,700-plus minor operations, and more than 1.3 million clinic visits across its main campus and its community clinics. Of UIHC's 78 locations statewide, 21 are in the Iowa City area, including a Quick Care East location on Sycamore Street near the Sycamore Mall in southeast Iowa City. Most of UIHC's 70-plus locations offer some form of primary care or family medicine. UIHC reported that, in addition to serving patients' primary care needs, the planned Southeast Iowa City facility will enhance the university's ability to train future physicians to help address the shortage of physicians across the state, as well as conduct medical research. 
In response to critiques from community hospitals across eastern Iowa concerned with UIHC's expansion into their primary care lane, grievances aired during UIHC's battle to build in North Liberty, university officials stressed the need for advanced spaces to educate and conduct research. UIHC also cited a dire need to alleviate long emergency room wait times in reporting plans to add emergency space in North Liberty and now to expand primary care options in southeast Iowa City. According to the UIHC, studies have shown that limited access to primary care can increase people's use of emergency departments or urgent care as their main source of health care. Not only does this increase health care costs and emergency care backlogs, but it also increases a person's likelihood of developing chronic diseases. In a statement, UIHC Interim Chief Executive Officer and Chief Nurse Executive Kim Hunter said the university aims to increase access and break down barriers by adding services in southeast Iowa City. Hunter said having a relationship with a primary care doctor for regular preventive care is shown to have better long-term health outcomes. The new Southeast facility, once completed, will house most of the primary care services currently located at the main campus, according to officials. Schumacher said that will involve both relocating existing services and expanding them. Also on the front page, in a somewhat related story written by Vanessa Miller, says wide gap revealed as nurses push for raises. Dateline, Iowa City. Typifying the gaps separating the union representing thousands of University of Iowa healthcare workers and their governing board of regents, university union representatives Wednesday opened contract negotiations with a 25-page proposal, including a 14% raise, while regents offered a 1.5 to 3% raise on a single page. UIHC registered nurse Courtney Smith told regent negotiators dropping their thin proposal on the table, people are leaving, they're going to be gone. Although the Iowa legislature in 2017 rewrote Iowa's collective bargaining law to limit most public sector union negotiations to dealing over base wages only, the UIHC Chapter of Service Employees International Union, Local 199, asked regions to do what they're no longer legally bound to do and add back into their contract language addressing issues like pay differential, parental leave, and workplace violence. Describing a significant increase in the amount and type of violence UIHC staff have experienced over the last several years, Hannah Bott, who is the chief negotiator for the UIHC union, said, The problem is worsening nationwide and UIHC is not immune. She said, It's alarming. Our staff are concerned. We have people who have been in the field for decades who are scared to go into work. And we would really like to work with the hospital to see that be addressed. Among nearly a dozen healthcare workers in the room for negotiations Wednesday, most raised their hands when asked if they've experienced workplace violence. One said he's regularly punched in the face and has suffered a concussion. Another said a co-worker recently had a knife pulled on her. Part of the danger stems from the low staffing level, said UIHC emergency room physician assistant Michelle Whalen, who pointed out, for example, to long ER wait times that escalate patients to the point of violence. 
She said, some of these people are seriously ill, critically ill, and they're put back in the waiting room where they'll sit for hours. There's no attendant out there or anybody surveying the waiting room, checking how people are doing. They're vomiting. They're seizing. They're doing God knows what out there. And then, when it's like six, eight, twelve hours until they finally are starting to get the care and orders enacted that I wrote from the triage area, it's no wonder people escalate. That, Waylon said, ties into low staffing, which is tight because of recruitment and retention challenges amplified by wages. Union officials said they researched wages in other Midwest states in formulating their proposal for a 14% pay raise for all employees in the next budget year and a 12% raise in fiscal 2025. Bott said university administrators have acknowledged in the past that we are behind on wages for staff, particularly in the SEIU unit, for particularly for nurses, and we would like to see those wages come up. The union also asked for longevity pay amounting to 4% each time an employee hits a milestone and differential pay for those who work overnight shifts and as charge nurses, for example. The union also suggested staffers in units with more reported assaults receive higher pay. Having recently moved into an RN position, UIHC registered nurse Alex Kestrel Kestrel said many of his nursing college peers plan to take jobs outside UIHC or to work as traveling nurses who fill vacancies around the country. Kestrel said people are leaving the hospital to go take traveling jobs where they can make a lot more money. People are leaving the hospital to go work in other states and other institutions where they can make more money. Although only the first meeting of the ongoing negotiations is public, Board's chief negotiator Michael Galloway had another commitment an hour and a half into the discussion. After presenting the board's proposed 1.5% minimum pay raise and 3% raise for returning employees in both of the next two years, Galloway said he appreciates the union's safety concerns but sees that and other issues as best addressed by UIHC policy and not in the employment contract. He said, I want to not set up any false hopes. We will not be putting additional language back in the contract. He cited direction from the Board of Regents. I don't think it is good to set up false expectations as to what could occur during the bargaining process. And language going back in the contract is not something that we've been given the authority to do, nor do we perceive that we will be given that authority. UIHC senior physical therapist Barb Stannerson said, if the board continues to do the minimum, they should start expecting that from their employees. Stannerson said, if you're going to pay us the minimum, people are going to start saying, why do I bust my back here for these patients working hours that are unbelievable because they're so short-staffed? I could go to another state and make a lot more money and not have to kill myself. The story on the front page that might be of interest to veterans is written by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette. Lawmakers try to fix depleted fund for aiding vets. Dateline Des Moines. A depleted state fund for emergency financial assistance to Iowa veterans would get a boost under the multiple proposals from Iowa lawmakers. The available funds from the Iowa Veterans Trust Fund ran out for the first time in a decade in October, 
State officials had recently expanded eligibility and increased costs exhausted the funding. That meant funds were unavailable to veterans who had hoped to use the program to help pay for a myriad of eligible expenses, like medical equipment, emergency room care, dental and hearing care, emergency housing and vehicle repairs, counseling, unemployment assistance, and job training. The Iowa Commission of Veteran Affairs, which is housed in the Iowa Department of Veteran Affairs and operates the program, has been forced to reject veterans' requests for financial assistance. It's pretty heartbreaking to turn away a widow or a veteran who needs a new roof and doesn't have insurance, according to Carol Whitmore, a commission member from Des Moines. The commission spent $632,000 in 2019 and $573,000 in 2020. During 2021, in an effort to aid more veterans during the COVID-19 pandemic and in the wake of the August 2020 deratio, the Commission spent nearly $1.3 million. By October of 2022, however, the entire available funding from the Trust Fund was exhausted, and the Commission postponed accepting new requests until additional funds became available. Lawmakers Wednesday started working on potential remedies. The Iowa Veterans Trust Fund contains $38.6 million, according to the fund's 2022 report, but that money cannot be spent until it reaches $50 million. Spending from the program comes from an annual $500,000 allocation from the state's lottery fund, plus interest on the lottery fund, which totaled just shy of $60,000 last year. A bill in the Iowa House would increase the annual allocation from $500,000 to $800,000. House Study Bill 21 was introduced by Representative Chad Ingalls, a Republican from Mandalia, who chairs the House's Veterans Affairs Committee. The State Veterans Affairs Department made a similar request last year, and the bill was approved unanimously by the House, but was not considered by the Senate. But that would only help the trust fund in future years. Meantime, the fund remains empty through June 30th, the end of the state budget year. A bill in the Iowa Senate would double the annual allocation from $500,000 to a million and also would immediately appropriate $500,000 for immediate use. Senate File 82 was proposed by Senate Democrats, including Senator Bill Dotzler, a Democrat from Waterloo, who said, As a state... We should never turn away veterans in need, but that's exactly what's happening now. This bill will erase the existing shortfall in the Veterans Trust Fund and help ensure we're keeping our promises to those who served. We owe it to our veterans to honor their service and meet their needs, especially in emergency situations. Republican Representative Martin Graber from Fort Madison said the House Republican bill would also eventually include an emergency appropriation to the trust fund or a separate allocation that could come via the state's budgeting process. Graber said there are veterans who have bills that aren't getting paid, so yes, this is a sense of urgency. Iowa Veterans Affairs Director Todd Jacobus was at the Iowa Capitol on Wednesday to address state legislators. He said there should be a discussion about eligibility for the program in order to ensure that funds are not depleted again and that veterans who are truly in an emergency have access to the funds. Jacobus said, More resources would definitely provide more flexibility, and I really think that we need to relook at the rules associated with what qualifies an individual for an emergency. 
Meantime, Iowa veterans in need of financial assistance should talk to their local veteran services officials about other options and programs, the State Veterans Affairs Office said. Moving on now to the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by the Gazette's Grace King. CR School's new leader could be named next week. Dayline, Cedar Rapids. The next superintendent of the Cedar Rapids Community School District is expected to be announced next week. That's according to School Board President David Tominski. Educators and district residents want to see the next superintendent be someone with experience in leading a diverse school district, be good at relationship building, and have a proven track record of student achievement, according to survey data collected. An Illinois firm, Hazard Young, Aetna, and Associates said they are helping to identify candidates to become the next superintendent. Tominski said, candidates are very much so meeting those expectations. The leadership profile the community helped us put together has been the guiding document in this search. Tominski said the board is not releasing the names of the three finalists who will go through a second interview with the board this week before an announcement is expected January 26th and could not say if the candidates are from Iowa or out of state. He said protecting the identity of the candidates is extremely important. It allows us to consider the best possible candidates. Tominski said no one outside the school board has been involved in conducting the interviews based on the guidance of Hazard, Young, Etta, and Associates to help the district run a confidential search. He said a lot of that community engagement was at the front end. He said decisions that could impact Iowa schools, now being debated by leaders in the Iowa House and Senate, have not steered any candidates away. They're ready to fight for kids, work for the best interest of kids, and be a vocal person in that discussion. Dominski said a start date will be part of the negotiation process when the next superintendent is announced. His expectation would be the next superintendent start July 1st. The district hosted more than 20 in-person community, parent, and student input sessions in November by invitation only. The district emailed invitations to more than 12,000 families and students, 2,500 staff, 24 civic leaders, 48 community partners, and 46 community leaders. According to a district newsletter, four virtual community input sessions were also held to gather perceptions of the district and determine the desired characteristics of the new superintendent. Dominski said, What seems to be consistent is people hold Cedar Rapids in high regard as far as the work happening here. They're looking closely at our strategic plan and seeing something they can come in and continue that work. Former Superintendent Noreen Bush died October 23rd. Art Sathoff, the retired superintendent of the Indianola Community School District, was named interim superintendent in November. Sathoff's contract calls for a $167,000 salary as well as benefits through June 30th. Moving on to the Insight page, we have a couple community letters today. The first one comes from Virginia Meyer of Lone Tree, who says, Many citizens and institutions are voicing a wide variety of valid arguments in opposition to Governor Kim Reynolds' plan to move public school money to private schools. One objection has seen little comment. Yet it may be the most fundamentally powerful argument of all. 
Here are some facts to clarify why this important objection is so central to our freedoms. Fully, 84% of Iowa's private schools are religiously affiliated. Of these religious schools, 55% identify as Catholic, 20% as Christian, and 11% as Lutheran, and there is one Islamic school. Should our public tax dollars pay for private religious education? Should we be compelled to support educating children in religious institutions that do not comport with our individual faith practices and beliefs? The First Amendment guarantees our freedom of religion. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment also guarantees our freedom from religion. The Reynolds Voucher Scheme will limit that fundamental right and compel public support of government funding private religion. That's a community letter from Virginia Meyer of Lone Tree. We also have one from Ron Olson of Cedar Rapids who says, How does cutting state dollars available for K-12 public school funding by a likely $341 million a year sound like a good strategy to attract new businesses and people to Iowa, as well as keeping the brain drain of young people and families from leaving the state? Cutting available funding for most of the nearly 500,000 public school students to subsidize 10,000 families in private schools is another dagger in the heart of Iowa's K-12 public schools after years of inadequate allowable growth funding. Even our governor's predecessor, Terry Branstad, realized the importance of a high-quality and appropriately funded public education when, in 2013, he proposed $187 million in funding in addition to that year's allowable growth funding that will bring Iowa closer to its goal of providing a world-class education to all children no matter where they live. Having world-class public schools was one of four top priorities set by Branstad that year. We now see where Kim Reynolds and State House Republican priorities are, and that's not with providing a world-class public education to all students. Voters, contact your elected state representative and state senator and tell them you are against private school vouchers and the defunding of our K-12 public schools. And that is a community letter from Ron Olson of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. And we start with the other shorter notices. From Marion, Sue Ann Ford, age 75, died Saturday, January 14th. The Burdock Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is in charge of those arrangements. From Nichols, Larry Bike age 81, died Tuesday, January 17th. Assisting the family will be the Henderson Barker Funeral Home of West Liberty. Out of Norway, Bonnie Brecht, age 75, died Monday, January 16th. In charge of those arrangements is the Brosh Funeral Service of Norway. From Tama, Thomas Frank Crone, age 79, died Tuesday, January 17th. The Cruz Phillips Funeral Home of Tama Toledo is in charge of those arrangements. And from Williamsburg, Gary Dennis Gregory, age 71, died Monday, January 16th. Assisting the family will be the Powell Funeral Home of Williamsburg. Now to the longer obituaries. From Beaverton, Oregon, Janice Marie Novak who died on Christmas Day, 2022. 
Visitation will be from 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Monday, January 23rd at the Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids. Burial will follow the visitation at the Rogers Grove Cemetery in Ely, Iowa. Dale Eugene Wells, age 97, of Clarence, passed away on January 17th at Pro Medica Senior Care Center in Cedar Rapids. Funeral services will be held at 2.30 Saturday afternoon, January 21st, at Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence, with the pastor Randy Cruz officiating. Visitation will be from 1.30 p.m. until service time. Burial will be in the Green Center Cemetery in rural Morley, Iowa, with military honors. Dorothy Van Verst, age 94, of Cedar Rapids, died Sunday, January 15th, at the Views Senior Living of Marion. A funeral service will be held at 2.30 Friday afternoon, January 20th, at the Carmel Reformed Church of Rural Rock Valley, with Stefan Van Voost and Mark Van Voost officiating. Interment will follow the service in the Carmel Church Cemetery. A time of visitation and refreshments will be held prior to the service from 12.30 p.m. to 2 p.m. at the Carmel Reformed Church. Memorials may be given to the Sioux County Cancer Board, the Smile Train, in memory of Melissa Grone. Daryl Francis Getzinger, age 88, a longtime resident of Marion, passed away on Wednesday, January 18th at Anamosa Care Center. A vigil service will be held at 1.30 Sunday afternoon, January 22nd, at the Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, where a visitation will follow until 4 p.m. Deacon Ken Bauer will officiate. Inurment will take place at a later date at the Latnerville Catholic Cemetery in Latnerville, Iowa. Bertha Garner, age 88 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Monday, January 16th, at Mercy Hospital after a brief illness. A celebration of life service will be held at 1 p.m. Saturday, January 21st, at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Marion. Visitation will be held at 10 a.m., with the service beginning promptly at 1 p.m. at the church. The burial will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Eileen Rose Stockman, age 97, of Cosgrove, passed away Monday, January 16th. A mass of Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 o'clock Monday morning, January 23rd, at St. Peter Catholic Church in Cosgrove. Visitation will be from 2 to 4, Sunday, at St. Peter Catholic Church. A rosary will be recited at 1.30 p.m. Burial will be at St. Peter's Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Eileen Stockman Memorial Fund. Rosemary Rodenhofer Mangold, age 82, of Van Horn, passed away peacefully on Sunday at Belle Plaine Specialty Care. On Sunday, January 15th, Terry Christian Samberger, age 78 years, passed away. A memorial service will be held at 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon at the Darby Funeral Home in Canton, Georgia, with a short visitation beginning at 1 p.m. In lieu of giving flowers, the family asks that those who are able instead make a donation to the American Kidney Fund. Ronnie Pancho Gein Craig passed away from Mount Vernon on January 17th, a month shy of his 69th birthday at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. His last act of generosity was to give the gift of life to at least three other persons through organ donation. 
Visitation will be on Friday, January 20th from 3 to 7 p.m. with a funeral mass at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 21st, both at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Mount Vernon, with Father Dennis Jewell officiating. A gathering toasting Ronnie will be held following the funeral at Mount Vernon Creates from noon till 6 with libations and nourishment. They are asked to bring a story to share, a poem, a song, a guitar, or just you. Turning to sports... Here's uh, Dateline Cedar Rapids. Seven former Cedar Rapids Washington standouts and one contributor will be enshrined in the Warriors Hall of Fame on Friday. The group will be honored between the girls' and boys' basketball games between Washington and Jefferson at approximately 7.30. The honorees are Jeff Smith in swimming from the class of 1966, Kyle Rich in baseball and football in the class of 1976, Keen Rich a baseball player from the class of 79, K.K. Armstrong from basketball in the class of 2008, Andre Dawson, a football player from the class of 2010, Joseph Gallet in swimming from the class of 2010, Austin Bergstrom in soccer and golf from the class of 2013, and contributor Kathy Jornson. Here's a story about high school wrestling written by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette, Raiders fight way into good spot. Williamsburg's season started with some uncertainty. New faces dotted the Raiders' young and inexperienced lineup. Williamsburg coach Grant Eckenrod was optimistic but had some questions. He said, You have some goals and hope you can be there at the end of the year. There were a lot of unknowns. Strong work ethic and a business-like approach has propelled the Raiders to number seven in the latest Iowa Wrestling Coaches and Officials Association Class 2A dual rankings, earning a chance to host a regional dual site January 31st. Williamsburg opened the season with a loss to number four Mount Vernon, but has climbed to 18-3 overall without another loss to a 2A program. Coach Eckenrod said, Our kids have just continually gotten better. It's been fun to watch. We've had kids in and out of the lineup. I don't think we've put our best lineup together yet. Hopefully, we can get that done soon. The Raiders have 10 wrestlers with winning records. Seven of them have surpassed 20 victories, including senior 2021 state runner-up Gavin Jensen, who leads the team at 26-4. They have done it with a blue-collar approach. The hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard is their thinking motto. Coach Eckenrod said, I'm very pleased with how these kids have come along and how they've improved. It's been an awesome group to work with. They're a hard-working and quiet bunch, not a lot of hoorah and emotional type guys. They come to practice, work out, and are great kids. The sum of the whole is greater than the parts, and the Raiders seem stronger in dual competition. Williamsburg does have two ranked wrestlers. Jensen is third at 120, and senior Gable Dayton is ninth at 182. Dayton won Benton Community's Bobcat Jerry Eckenrod Invitational and was a runner-up last weekend at the Lloyd Schaefer Marion Invitational. He's been a leader by example for the program. Coach Eckenrod said, He's a super quiet kid and does what he's supposed to do. The kid has put in some extra time. We've got to have those guys where you see them in the off-season. 
They're in the weight room and get some extra mat time. A lot of these guys are doing that and will be more successful. Gable is one of those guys. He's had a heck of a football season. It has just carried over to wrestling. Williamsburg is one of three WAMAC conference programs that will host a regional duel. Number three, West Delaware and Mount Vernon also will host the state duels qualifier. Number 12, Independence is expected to be in the field. Benton Community and South Tama are just on the outside of the top 24 in 2A, giving the strong WAMAC a possibility of six teams in the field. Eckenron said the WAMAC is loaded, not only in wrestling, but everything. You have to have to have that great competition. You have to be in serious battles during the regular season. It gets you ready for the postseason. Other Gazette area hosts will be number 5 Linmar in 3A and Alburnett in Lisbon in 1A. Back now to the news section. Here's a story about COVID cases in the state of Iowa. It says Iowa adds COVID-19 cases. This is a story written by Gage Miskaman of the Gazette. Iowa on Wednesday reported 1,690 new COVID-19 cases in the past week, a decrease from the 2,201 cases reported the previous week. The actual total, though, is much higher given the availability of at-home test kits, the results of which are not reported to the state. In Lynn County, 159 new COVID-19 cases were reported in the past week, up from 147. The counties recorded 63,854 cases since March of 2020, according to the Iowa Department of Public Health. Johnson County reported 97 cases last week, down from 150. The number is the lowest number since 43 of them were reported on March 30th of 2022. Johnson County has recorded 44,353 cases since the start of the pandemic. To date, 892,558 people have tested positive for COVID-19 in Iowa since the pandemic was first detected. The state confirmed 30 deaths from COVID-19 in the past week, including two in Johnson County. The county has recorded 173 deaths since the start. The state reported 45 deaths last week. Since March 2020, 10,538 Iowans have died from COVID-19. In the past week, 177 were hospitalized with COVID-19 in Iowa, down from 222 last week. Intensive care patients went from 23 down to 17. Here's a story written by Emily Anderson of the Gazette. CR man charged with involuntary manslaughter. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. A Cedar Rapids man faces a charge of involuntary manslaughter, accused of supplying a woman with drugs that led her to her death in September. 26-year-old David Joseph Taylor brought the woman, Caitlin Marquez, to the Emergence of Mercy Emergency Department in Hiawatha September 8th, according to a criminal complaint. The complaint states she was in full rigor with lividity in her abdomen, indicating she had been face down and deceased for an extended period of time prior to her arrival. The Office of the Iowa State Medical Examiner concluded that the cause of her death was a result of acute mixed drug intoxication from methadone, methamphetamine, and alcohol. Two days before, on the evening of September 6th, Taylor had provided Marquez with methamphetamine and what he believed to be codeine. She consumed these with alcohol. The supposed codeine actually was methadone, according to the complaint. 
The complaint states the combination of methamphetamine with methadone, which is an opiate, is referred to as a speed ball, which can have more toxic effects than either drug alone. The complaint states Taylor admitted he knew Marquez was affected strongly by the drugs, and another witness reported she was sweating, had pale lips, and was coming in and out of consciousness. Instead of taking Marquez to receive medical treatment immediately, Taylor told her to go lie down in a machine shed. Taylor then took more drugs and passed out himself, coming in and out of consciousness for almost a full day before he woke up and checked on Marquez again. He found her cold and stiff and took her to the emergency room, but admitted he knew she was already dead, according to the complaint. A warrant was issued for Taylor's arrest January 9th, and he was booked into the Lynn County Jail on Sunday. He had his first appearance in court Monday and is being held on a $10,000 cash or surety bond. Moving on now to the hoopla section of this Thursday paper, a story called Coming Home, written by correspondent Ed Condren. It's a homecoming in several respects for Bridget Kearney. The Iowa City native is returning for a sold-out show with Lake Street Dive at Hancher Auditorium next Tuesday night. The vocalist-bassist played the former Hancher building in seventh grade when her first band, called Metro Pilot, won a contest in which then-U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop appeared. Kearney said it was for an event encouraging kids not to smoke, and our song was called Live, which was inaccurately pronounced. It was a pretty good song for a bunch of 7th graders. Kearney, now 37, remembers the lyrics, which go, When you're young, you think nothing can take your life away. You think nothing can ever hurt you. You are immortal. Then you find someday that's not the truth. You find that nothing lasts forever. Don't find out the hard way. Metro Pilot is in the rear view, and it's been all about Lake Street Dive since Kearney and her classmates of the New England Conservatory of Music became friends and formed the group in 2004. Lake Street Dive, which delivers soulful pop rock with elements of jazz, folk, and funk, played one of its first gigs outside Boston in Iowa City in 2004. Kearney said, while calling from Cabo San Lucas, we flew into Iowa City and borrowed my parents' minivan as our first touring vehicle. Before we hit the road, we played in this ice cream store that doesn't exist anymore, which was next to the public library. We were supposed to play somewhere else, but that wasn't going to happen, and the ice cream shop owner said, you can play here. So that was my first show with this band in my hometown. Lake Street Dive has a loyal fan base that enjoys its loose, eclectic music, often filled with socially conscious lyrics. Kearney said the band, which also includes Aki Burmis on keyboards, Rachel Price on lead vocals, ukulele, and guitar, Mike Calabrese on drums, and James Cornelison on guitar, owes much of its unique style to the New England Conservatory of Music. Kearney said, The fundamental building blocks were all learned there. There was great emphasis on personal style. So much was about developing your own sound and being inventive with the way things were built sonically. Kearney also credits the Iowa music scene for impacting her career. She said, When I was growing up, I would see shows at Sanctuary, and then there was the Jazz Festival and Summer Arts Festivals. Kearney chose the bass in the fourth grade since she could join the school band a year earlier playing that instrument. She said, I just thought it would go with the bass that year and switch instruments the next year, but 
After I started playing bass and got to know it, I decided to stay with it. The cool thing is that if you're a bass player, there's always demand. There were points in which I was in 12 different bands. The West High alum class of 2003 releases solo albums and jams with other bands, but her main focus is on Lake Street Dive, which is on its Gather Around Sounds tour. She said, what we're doing is playing around one microphone. We're playing acoustically. It's a pared-down setup. We've done this in the middle of our shows. We love doing songs in that format. It's a more intimate tour, and we'll play songs from our entire catalog. It's going to be fun coming back home. I always look forward to it. Kearney returns to Iowa City to visit her parents three or four times a year, especially for holidays, but there's nothing like performing in her hometown. She said, It's my favorite thing. I'm back for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and I love it, but I really enjoy coming back home and performing before familiar faces. My parents said that a lot of people I know will be out. Kearney also will hit some of her favorite haunts. She said, I always go to the Java House and the Natural History Museum. Some of the coolest places are in Iowa City. That's high praise considering Kearney resides in Brooklyn, New York. She said, I love where I live in Crown Heights, but I really enjoy Iowa City. Here's a food-related story out of Cedar Rapids and a story written by Elijah Dishis. It's called More Flavors. In a difficult environment for restaurants and food-based businesses, Jay Spencer knows that going out to eat is a tough sell for diners, too. That's why, despite the challenges from inflation and food costs that every restaurateur is facing in the wake of the pandemic's complications, he keeps his prices relatively low. Years after even a large chain like Subway discontinued its $5 footlong, you still can get a full meal at More Flavors Hoagies for just $5.99 minus the drink. Spencer says, I want it to be worth it. If you've driven through the area adjacent to Nubo District or been to Pendolin, you've probably seen the corner shop, but it may have been closed last time you went through. With extensive interruptions from construction, street blockings, and a subsequent pandemic and deratio, More Flavors has had a rough go of it since opening in 2019. In 2022, he reported the shop reopened the shop after a winter closure. Now, Spencer is recommending recommitting to the state's space's momentum with improvements as new projects continue to develop. Nubo. Soon, a food truck he's fixing up alongside the small space will help him get his name out to more people at farmers markets and the streets home to Cedar Rapids' growing food truck fleet. He said, I'm starting to get more momentum. As a fast, casual concept, more flavors can be quick but not in the fast food kind of way. To make flavors just right, Spencer takes his time behind the counter, assembling each cold or hot hoagie. Although it has a humble area for limited dine-in, more flavors is enjoyed to go, enjoyed to go by most customers. With flavors and assembly that he said are not replicated by any other shop in town, his menu stands out from the crowd with a simplicity that lets its best features shine. He said, a hoagie is not a sandwich. It's distinguished mostly by the fact that sandwiches are drier than what he makes. With his own special twists, his handheld creations are a point of pride inspired by East Coast Italian styles. He says, I can get flavors like this nowhere around. It's not just oregano or Italian seasoning. 
He pickles the sweet peppers himself, and cold hoagies are coated with a proprietary oil blend. His signature super steak hoagies feature a savory, tangy sauce. He garnishes cold cuts with thin sliced onions, tomatoes, pickles, pepperoncini, and cheese. Chicken hoagies offer a sweet flavor that jumps. Fries, the main side offered with sandwiches, are well-seasoned with a crispy shell coating that is relatively thick-cut for fries in a fast, casual restaurant. Spencer says, it's been a lot of downs, but we're turning them into ups now. Also dealing with food is a story that says Mexican restaurants popping up in eastern Iowa. Dateline, Hiawatha. The abundance of Mexican restaurants, one of the most populous categories of local restaurants in Cedar Rapids, is starting to spread to the city of Five Seasons' next-door neighbor. Four Hermanos Mexican Food opened in December at 1725 Boyson Road. The expansive menu features a wide variety of burritos, fries, nachos, quesadillas, enchiladas, salads, tacos, and roll tacos, commonly known as taquitos. The location was previously home to Tatiana's Coffee Shop and Cafe several years ago. For Hermanos is a fast, casual concept that offers a drive-through, carry-out, or counter service for dining in. A new Mexican restaurant soon will be opening in Coralville's Iowa River Landing District as well. Coralville City Council approved a new 10-year lease for Blue Agave Mexican Restaurant during their January 10th meeting, pending a February 14th public hearing. The new restaurant also will have two five-year lease renewal options. The ground-level space at 211 East 9th Street, Suite 135, previously was home to La Vecina Restaurante, a modern, upscale Mexican restaurant. An opening date for the new restaurant has not yet been announced and was not articulated in the lease agreement with the city, although the agreement stipulates that the new tenant must open the restaurant by May 1st. If you've ever wanted to own a coffee shop, a new opportunity is on the market in Swisher. Kava House and Cafe owners Karen and Craig Vondrak announced January 9th that their business is for sale. They said, the time has come for us to hang up our aprons, and we have and continue to operate Kava with care for our town and our customers, but we're ready to retire. We are posting this on social media in hopes that there will be someone interested in carrying on the traditions and great service that Kava House is known for. The cafe started, he said, as a labor of love when their family began restoring the 100-year-old building in Swisher, completing renovation in 2007 with the coffee shop on the ground floor and four apartments above it. The building was built in 1914 and originally was a general store. Kava House and Cafe was named after the Czech word for coffee and it opened in November 2008 with full service for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In addition to coffee, the shop offers a variety of homemade pastries, desserts, and a gift shop. Now, if you're interested in the business proposal, you can contact them via email at kavahouse at southslope.net or by phone, here's the number, 319-857-5000. And that does it for the reading today of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 19th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening. <music>